Hello everyone and welcome back to Project Next. I'm Finn Blake and I'm bringing to light success stories to empower the next generation. Today's episode four and I'm incredibly excited to be talking to Matt Moran. Matt has had a long and illustrious career in all things food and media, but he was not without his early challenges. So hear the master chef explain his meteoric rise in the cooking industry. There are plenty nuggets of gold along the way for budding entrepreneurs, business people and foodies. If you're a fan of this episode, don't forget to hit that five star button and leave us a review. I'm really looking forward to this one, so let's get into it. All right, well, Matt Moran, thank you so much for joining me on Project Next. It's a very big pleasure to have you on. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation because, uh, you know, the traditional path is to come in and and be in your suit and be all, all corporated up. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing the story and thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, buddy. I um, I remember when I was a young kid, you know, thinking, God, you know, I'd hate to have to wear a suit every day to work. And thank God the chefs don't have to wear suits. Because, uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be a chef if I had to wear a suit every day. Not that I don't ever, you know, I go to I go to weddings every now and then and occasionally, you know, in corporate thing, I'll wear a suit, but, but uh, all the races, but it doesn't happen yeah. very often. What about the fashion choices in general? Have you got a, a you know certain way that you like to dress, or is it just whatever goes on in the day? Uh, look, you know, growing up with not a not a big fashion sense, um, I think I was in the top ten uh, buyers of Tom Ford in Australia at one point. So oh, I don't good. mind Tom Ford. <laughs> Very good to hear. So Matt, I do want to jump straight back um, at the yep. start of the journey. Can you tell me a little bit more about? what it was like to grow up on a farm and particularly in regional New South Wales. Look, it's a great upbringing because it, um, you know, it, it's a sense of freedom. Um, you can explore and, uh, um, but it's a little bit, you know, if, if you're by yourself, quite solitary, but it, it's a great upbringing. And I really enjoyed it. So tell me about what it was like to live on the farm because you would have had to have found things to do to take up your time. As you said, you were very isolated from all your mates and everyone else. So what was taking the time up while you were living on the farm? Um, well, look, you know, there was always there was always chores, you know, and this is something that frustrates me with the younger generation sometimes. There was always <laughs> something that you had to do. Um, it's not as though that, you know, you just lazed around with a, a video game in your hand. Um, you know, the minute you got home from school, you were actually out doing stuff. You you, you weren't, um, I probably should have been doing homework, to be honest, uh, but I never did. So it was always a, a, a little bit of an, an adventure. You know, we had, um, we had ponies, we had horses, we had mini bikes. So there was always something to do and it was always, always a little bit of fun. But you did it on your own. You didn't really have friends come over. You um, didn't make it all the way through school. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what drove your decision to leave school at 15? Yeah. Look, I was always very sporty. Um, and, uh, you know, so I played a lot of sport growing up, which I, which I loved. Um, you know, I went to a school that wasn't a great school. It was a public school. It was out the, because we, we moved off the farms when we were quite young. Um, and we had a dairy farm and, and unfortunately that went and there wasn't a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I don't have a great sense of concentration and never really have. Um, put it down to whatever you want to diagnose it as, um, which is probably a good thing because I get a lot done every day. Um, and uh, so I wasn't that academic. I was very good at, uh, at numbers and I still am very good at numbers, which obviously helps helps um, in business. And um, to be really honest, I, I did a little bit of work experience as um, a baker and a little bit of butchery and 
And, you know, kids in Blacktown didn't really become cooks um, or chefs, whatever you want to call them. Um, and uh, I, I kind of, I had a sense that, you know, it was all right, but I wasn't in love with it. I don't have a beautiful romantic story of having parents that are phenomenal cooks or grandparents. And, um, but I wanted to leave school. You know, I, I didn't like school. I, I really, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I was the youngest in my year out of 200 students. Um, I was always the youngest, you know, growing up, but I was a pretty big guy um, and, you know, sports sort of helped. So I, I never repeated. Um, so that probably would have put me behind too. And I suppose confidence was obviously lacking then too, you know, if you, if you weren't doing well at school. Um, and just really wanted to leave. So I would have done anything, Finn, to, to, to leave school, whether it was a, an apprenticeship, a, a motor mechanic or painter or whatever it is. But for some reason, I, I decided that it you know, may be a, a, a chef. Um, and I was working part-time on weekends in an RSL club. Um, I went for about 20 different interviews when I was 15. I was still at school. Um, yep. My father wouldn't let me leave unless I had an apprenticeship, but um, I was able to leave at the end of year 10. So I did a couple of months, you know, uh, the following year, going back into year 11. And um, and I couldn't get a job. You know, it's, it's quite funny now. People laugh about it. You know, uh, chefs wouldn't give Matt Moran a job as a cook. Um, and uh, I remember one guy even saying to me, you know, you uh, if the first 10 guys don't work out, I'll give you a call. And, you know, I, I just, I was really disheartened by it. And I, I, it was just, you know, very hard. I was only 15 at the time. And uh, I went to this place that I didn't really want to go to because it was so far away. It was about an hour and a half from where, where we live by public transport. And uh, it was on the North Shore. And I went in there and I just, I remember seeing a heap of names on a piece of paper and all the names had crosses next to them. And I thought, well, this is my chance, you know, to, to, um, to bluff something. And, and I said to the, the guy who was the chef and the owner, which didn't happen a lot back in those days, you know, the restaurant owners would tend to be businessmen people laundering money and the chefs were the dirty smelly guys out the back that no one really cared about. And, um, and I was just desperate. And I, I just said to the guy, I said, look, um, I don't have a lot of experience, but I can promise you one thing, you know, I can work hard. Um, I've got a really good work ethic. And if you give me a chance, I promise you, um, you know, I won't let you down. And because I said that, he told me to, uh, you know, come in and do a three day trial. I don't think I did that well in that trial. But um, he told me on the Monday, he said, you can leave school and, and you've got an apprenticeship. And little did I know that that was one of the best restaurants in the country. Um, oh, it was wow. very, you know, very French, very fine dining. Um, and, uh, and I remember my father used to come and pick me up every night um, because he was worried that if I, if I didn't go through with this and, and pulled out, I'd already left school and I wouldn't be able to get another job. Um, so he used to pick me up every night. He used to drive an hour to come and pick me up in Roseville and drive me back to, to Blacktown because we worked six days back in those days. Um, and a kid from, from Blacktown being 15 to working in a restaurant that is fine dining and we would do a minimum of 80 hours a week. My first paycheck was about $150. So you work that out. It's, you know, it's, it's about two bucks an hour. And, uh, and because I'm a little bit of, you know, compulsive, obsessive and whatever, I just... I just wanted to excel and, you know, I, I knew that I was doing all right in the first year because everyone else around me was always getting bollocking and I, I never was. So I was the, the golden child, I suppose. Um, and I'd come in, you know, a couple of hours early every, every, every day when I could and I'd try and learn something more. 
try to do pastry and, and try to learn how to pipe properly. And, and I, I became obsessed by it. In fact, I lost, I was there for four and a half years. And I pretty much lost my teenage years to just working incredibly hard and, and trying to learn as much as I possibly could. At what point do you think it sort of set into your mind that you were like, okay, I can actually make a go of this. This is going to be what I do. Uh, look, it was, to be honest, it was in the first week of being there. You know, I realized that this is, this is like, wow, you know, I've never seen food like this, you know, and um, I've just, you know, what they, what they got out of the fridge in the cool room and then they put it on the plate looks so beautiful. So it opened my eyes in so many different ways. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed the pastry side of it and hence that's why, I'm, you know, I started doing TV and judging, you know, Great Australian Bake Off and, and things like that is because I've got a real pastry background. During the, that time where you were going through and you were an apprentice and you were, you know, very green, who were your biggest mentors at that time and how much impact did they have on, your, you know, your acceleration in terms of ability? Um, my look, the, my head chef at the time, who was also the owner, um, a guy called Michael DeLawrence, who I'm still very close with. Um, you know, he was he was classically trained and, and worked in Europe, and and uh, you know there was a couple of sous chefs when I was really really early. A woman called Kathy Lyley, who was a Kiwi girl, she ended up um, marrying a Dutchman and moving to Europe. Um, she was a massive influence. She taught me a lot. She was really tough on me, you know you'd be standing for some days 16 hours and you'd be leaning on one leg and she'd come up behind you and kick the leg that's straight and tell you to stand on both legs because it's bad for your posture so she was a real bitch and I hated her um and uh and I'd go in there and try and learn as much as I possibly could off her and then uh, when she left she actually went and worked for Kerry Packer um as a private personal chef and she did catering um on the side and I remember after it might have been six months after she left, she actually rang me and said, Matt, can you come and help me, you know, do some catering gigs? So, you know, and I thought to myself, geez, she was such a bitch to me that that whole time that I worked with her, but she obviously thought that I was all right because, you know, she ended up asking me, you know, to come and work with her. Um, so, you know, we became great mates, of, of course. Great. What were you taking out of um, your mentors at that time and and what were the particular lessons that you found really important to shaping who you are today? Um, look, you know, I learned from these mentors how to work hard, um, discipline, and, um, you know, you get nothing in life unless you work for it, you know. Um, you know, it, it's... And, and these guys always used to say to me, you know, because they went off and did their own restaurants, they did their own catering, and um, you know, it was always you've got to work really bloody hard to get where you where you want, especially in that industry because it was really competitive. Um, chefs started buying restaurants, is where you know previously it was businessmen, and um, and chefs started to become a lot more popular than what they were. Um, the reason being is you know if you were a, a big player and you wanted to go to a, a nice restaurant and you wanted the nice table. You, you wanted to know the owner of the of the restaurant, hence, you know, the, the business guys. And we were, you know, I mentioned it before, we were the smelly, dirty guys out the back that no one cared about. But then when the restaurants started uh, being owned by the chefs, everyone wanted to know the chefs because they wanted, you know, the nice table. Um, and hence why I probably know so many people, you know, I can, I can walk into, uh, 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 you know, into a government and know pretty much every politician um, or, you know, most of the, most of the music guys or, or actors or whatever it is, you know, I, I meet them over the years because they come to the restaurants and they want to know you because they want the, they want the nicest table. 
Fair enough. And so in terms of where you were as a chef at that time, where were you drawing your inspiration from uh, in terms of the food you were cooking? LaBelle taught me how to cook and uh, Manfredi taught me about produce. And then, you know, I met um, a guy that I worked with for many years at LaBelle, Peter Sullivan, um, who was about five years older than me. And I was 22 and, you know, I'd, uh, I'd been offered a job by a guy called Tetsuya. Um, and I thought, geez, you know what, I want to go out and do my own thing. And, um, and then Pete and I started looking. So that's when I bought Paddington in, and I was 22. Very young, very green. I was, yeah, um, I was yeah. going to say, so that was 1991 that you that started was 91. the first restaurant. Yeah. So tell me about the emotions at that time because you were obviously 22. That's very young to be taking on your own project. Uh, what yeah. were the emotions like at that time and was it something pretty scary for you? Yeah, it was really scary because it was our own money. Um, you know, I knew how to run a kitchen and Peter knew how to run the front of house, but we had no idea about the business side of it. So I remember after the first year, we nearly went broke a couple of times because, you know, we just didn't know, know uh, how to manage our costs. And I think the most important lesson I learned was to actually surround yourself with people that know more about um, business and, and, uh, and running a, a place than, than, than you do. Um, and, you know, then it was all about... Yeah, that, that was my second sort of uh, lot of education um, for the next sort of 10 years uh, was learnt, learning how to run a business properly. So Matt, tell me about the decision-making process when you were um, coming up with this first restaurant that you were going to open. Was it you woke up one morning and you were like, yep, I'm going to open a restaurant or was it a little bit more considered? It was a little bit more considered and, um, you know, it, it's a big thing for a 22 year old, you know, with a partner who was a great mate, you know, he was 27 to go out and, and actually fund it and, and do it. Uh, land of opportunity. Um, you know, we were both very cocky and we, we both thought that, you know, we could do good food and, and do good service. Uh, the business side of it, we had no idea. Um, you know, I, I used to think to myself that, you know, if it doesn't work, I'm young enough to go back, you know, I, I could get a job anywhere because, you know, I was, I was already had a profile um, and, uh, you know, I could go and get a job anywhere and, and get myself back out of it. But, you know, at, at a young age, let's have a crack, you know, and, and why not and see what happens. And I was lucky, you know, we, we, uh, we succeeded. Do you think that sort of legitimised your career or do you think the little ones beforehand were kind of giving you the confidence to be able to know, yep, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Yeah, I think there's the real big turning points were, you know, Paddington Inn in the beginning, Moran's, because Moran's was a, a serious restaurant, you know, Two Hats and, and whatever else. Aria was a, was a big, you know, turning point because it was, you know, it was the best location in Australia, I, I still think. Um, Opera Bar, you know, and which is a massive business, is probably the biggest, biggest single bar in Australia. Um, uh, you know, Chiswick for, for what I believe in, you know, the whole paddock to plate was a big turning point. Um, Barangaroo, which is one of the biggest investments I've ever made because um, we've got three places in, in one big building there, um, Barangaroo House. And uh, yeah, look, there, there's, been, there's been turning points all the way through, you know, and people keep asking me what's next and I keep saying, I don't know because, you know, I'm still young enough, you know, to, to still keep going and having a bit of fun. The pub near I want to have fun a lot next. more these days and then be, be serious, you know. Yep. If you asked me five years ago, I would have told you that I want, you know, another 20 restaurants. Um, now, probably not so many. You know, I want to make the ones that, that I've got work and, uh, and, and work really well. 
and uh, I want to have a little bit of fun in life, hence why I bought the, the country pub and I want to do accommodation, something that I haven't done before. And I want to, I love baking bread and I love baking and I've always wanted to own a bakery. So I'm going to build my own bakery. Um, you know, the town needs a general store. So I want to give it a general store. And the town is, is very quiet. There's nothing there. There's only one pub. There's not even a service station. Um, you know, I want to bring that town back to life and I'd love to look back in 20 years and go, you know what, I made that town. So it's, it's about giving back a little bit these days to... Do you think that came as a result of COVID, do you think? Or was it coming no. back into your mind a little bit earlier? Yeah, it's always it's always been in my mind. Man, yep. I, I'm very, very blessed in life. I'm very lucky. You know, I've, I've been able to do something that I that I love for 35 years and the industry's been really good to me. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been very successful in it. And, you know, there, there comes a point in your life, I think, where you look back and think, you know what, I wouldn't mind giving back to, to you know, anyone, you know, someone, anyone, the industry. You know, and, uh, and and that's where my mind is at the moment. Don't get me wrong. I still love the business side and I still want to make money. Um, and I'll still open more businesses, there's no question. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I'd like to give back as much as I possibly can. What do you think that's sort of come from? I know that you spoke about the feeling that you were lucky and that the industry had given you so much. But was there a particular morning that you woke up and went, all right, this is, I want to become a little bit more philanthropic in what I do? Or was it always something that you were pretty passionate about? Look, I, I know my family had some real hardship on, on, on the land and farming. Um, and, you know, I'm part of a foundation, which is Thankful for Farmers, which I, I help start. Um, and, you know, it's all about helping the farming community as much as we can and, and you know, raising monies and whatever else. Um, that part of me is because I remember, you know, growing up and seeing some, you know, family doing it pretty tough. Um, and, uh, you know... Yeah, look, I, I think I've, I've always had a little bit in, 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 my, in my veins, you know, of um, helping other people. You know, I was, I was very lucky. A lot of people helped me when I was very young. You know, I've had some great mentors, you know, some great partners over the years. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, I think part of being a good human is, is trying to, you know, help people. For sure. And so I want to change tack a little bit and talk about your media career because that has been very... Uh, profound, if you like, and I, I remember sitting in the lounge room with my family growing up and watching Master Chef. And when you walked in the room, I still remember the feeling of going, "All right, this this bloke means business. We are not mucking around now. This show is becoming serious now. No laughing." Mm. Was that something that you sort of worked on, or was it something that you found the producers uh, were pushing? No, look, I the first TV show I ever did. I think I've done about twelve. Um, overall you know in my career the first one was there was a documentary called heat in the kitchen and there was a my my restaurant rules and i remember auditioning for it and i didn't really want to but the the girl that was doing some media for me you know convinced me to do it and it was a concept of you know two people in each state and the winner gets given a restaurant that have never actually owned a restaurant before and i was like this is a fucking stupid show it's never going to last you know, and they're like, why? And I said, because you're giving two idiots a restaurant that have never ran a restaurant before. I know how hard it is. And I think because of that, because I was so honest and so blunt, that's one of the reasons why I got it. One of my best mates, and, you know, it has been for nearly 30 years, is Gordon Ramsay. And uh, and Gordon and I have been mates. In fact, I even did a, a, one of Gordon's shows called The F Word when I was, God, I can't remember. It was one of Gordon's shows that they bought out and I, I was the host for it. And, um, you know, I remember watching Boiling Point you know, when I first met Gordon, when he was at Aubergine, 
and seeing how raw it was. And, uh, and I, I remember when I first met him, we were talking about it. I hadn't really done TV and he hadn't really done much of it at all, but Boiling Point was about to come out. And I just thought, you know what, if I ever do TV, I've just got to be myself. You know, I don't want to be produced. I don't want to be told what to do. Um, I, I just want to be myself. And, and if, I, if I feel as though I need to criticise something, I will criticise. And, and that's, that's always been my philosophy on TV. Um, yeah. one, one thing, Finn, is that I have a, a restaurant empire that, you know, makes me money and that's what I love the most. And TV has always been a byproduct. You know, don't get me wrong, it actually has helped the restaurants and being busy and, and I, I quite enjoy it. Certain, certain shows more than others. Um, but it's always been a byproduct. So I haven't relied on it um, like some people have. Mm. Um, and which has probably helped me because when they come along and say, Matt, would you like to do a TV show? Um, I'll, I'll be brutally honest. I won't do it just for the, for the cash, you yeah. know? Um, and do you kind of enjoy the theater of it as well. Yeah, look, I do, you know, in certain parts of it, you know, um, we've just, I've just been asked to, to do another, um, I don't think it's public yet. And it probably, you might get the scoop on this, but I'm going back and oh, doing nice. another, another bake off series. Oh, with great. Maggie beer this year. Um, and there's, I've got two other projects that I'm working on two other TV shows that I'm working on also. And I've got my YouTube channel thing that I do now with, you know, I have guests that come on. You know, I enjoy that part of it because I like, in, you know, interviewing people and, and, you know, talking about their journey and, and what they cook, um, kitchen tales. But, yeah, TV's always been a byproduct. And if someone told me that my TV career is over tomorrow, so be it. I just go back to what I do the most. If someone told me that my um, restaurant and chefing career is over tomorrow, I'd be absolutely devastated. So. Yep. That kind of sums up um, exactly how I feel about it. Matt, do you think it's pretty important for chefs coming through now to incorporate a little bit of media into their own brands? And do you think it's very different from when you were coming through? Mate, that's a very good question. Um, uh, look, I, I think it, it was very different when I came through. You know, there was no such thing as a celebrity chef or, or, or chef on TV. Um, and, you know, I was lucky around that generation is where it was happening and it was exploding. Um, but I think nowadays you have to, you have to have some sort of uh, media presence um, because it brings in people. And, you know, I won't deny that when I'm on TV, the restaurants get busier. And, uh, you know, and the, after I finish this today, I've got a, a, a Zoom cooking class mm -hmm. with uh, 30 corporates, um, you know, COVID still, everyone's a little bit hesitant. And I probably did about 20, 25 of those during COVID, you know, is where um, people know me as a, as a chef and also as a media personality. So then they want you to cook. So that, that you make money out of that also. And obviously your brand, you know, you can, you can see cookbooks behind me, you know, I've, I've, in the room, I've got boxes of them. So, you know, it helps, it helps every little bit, you know, you, you, you start to get a profile, then you get asked to do endorsements, you get asked to do cooking shows, you get asked to do stage shows, you get asked to do whatever it is, you know, come on TV and it, it, it helps generate revenue. For sure. And so what has been the best or your favorite moment in terms of media appearances? Like what was the, what sticks in your mind as the, the one interview or appearance or challenge on MasterChef or Bake Off? What's the one that sticks out? <laughs> um, I'll tell you, here's a good one for you. So I was doing junior master chef, I think. There was about, you know, half a dozen chefs and uh, they were allowed to bring their kids on. And, um, and I bought Harry and Harry, you know, was a tiny little tot. 
And uh, and I think George or, or or Matt asked Harry, so do you do you like your father's cooking? And uh, and Harry, of course, loves my cooking, but he was a bit shy and he didn't know what to say, and he said no. <laughs> And I'm like, Harry, what are you talking about? And uh, he kind of apologised afterwards. He probably won't remember it, but you know, it was it was a a, a a moment in TV that you know a couple of million people were watching, and uh, and they've asked my son whether he enjoys my food, and he said no. <laughs> it was something around that they asked him about my food or who the, who was a better cook, Mum yeah. or I can't remember. It was something like that, but it was it was quite embarrassing for me and. And poor old Harry just felt so bad afterwards because he, he didn't really mean to say it was just put on a spot and, you know, there's cameras everywhere and there's a lot of people around there. And that's probably the last time he's been on TV or I've asked him to actually ever do anything in the media with me. <laughs> um, you're probably well aware that, you know, I'm, I'm very protective of my family and I'm very private. So, of you course. know, there's no photos of my, my son or, or my daughter on, uh, on social media and I sort of kept him out of it. And so in terms of your craft... Um individually how have you seen the evolution of that from day one when you were the kitchen hand at the rsl mm. uh, tell me about the journey that your food production has gone through oh look you know i, I i've gone from you know learning to to then mentoring myself and, and teaching people and and uh you know food to me has got a lot simpler um you know, technique you obviously still need, but to me, it's it's all about the the produce that you're using, and that's you know, I've made a TV show out of it called Paddock to Plate, you know, um, promoting and, and highlighting the the producer because I think they're they're undervalued in this country. There's no question. Um, you know, so you know, simplicity is not a bad thing, and if you can take some some um, some ingredients off a plate, um, I think that it's probably it's probably better. You know, I think a lot of lot of restaurateurs and chefs. Are guilty of putting way too much stuff on a plate and then confusing it. Um, you know, I'm. I'll be honest with you. I've got chefs that work for me now that are far better cooks than, than I ever was. I, I I love cooking. I cook a lot at home, but I'm not cooking in the restaurants. You know, I'm, I'm sticking my fingers in things and I'm looking at it. And I'm, you know, in nearly or every nearly every restaurant that I that I own. You know, we have food tastings and I have a say in what goes on the menu, and. Um, you know, I, uh, I I comment on it, and you know, I always write reports on, on what I'm eating, and and try to help the chefs. And it's it's a collective; it's not a not a dictatorship. So we all have a bit of a say. Um, but you know, anyone that sees my Instagram and looks at my Instagram, Chef Matt Moran, they know that I'm always cooking. In fact, I'm I've uh, I'm meant to be doing the Good Food Wine Show this weekend, but it's got cancelled because of COVID. So uh, my first reaction was great. I've got nothing on Saturday. I'm going to spend four or five hours in the kitchen and uh, and make a, a beautiful French cassoulet, um, which is which is a bit of a favourite in our house because it, it lasts for a few days. So if you see um, young Harry today telling that I'm making a cassoulet on Saturday, he'll probably invite a few of his mates around. Yeah, I'll be up there for sure. I'll jump on the plane for that. But um, so, <laughs> so Matt, I was, I was going to ask you as well, um, you've touched on COVID a couple of times. That that would have been a massive um, curveball for you as, as much, much of the industry would oh, have yeah. experienced that. Um, tell me about the challenges that you would have faced throughout last year and this year as well. Uh, look, you know, we're, we're going through a little bit of a spike at the moment, so restaurants are very quiet. Look, when COVID first hit, it was absolutely devastating. Um, you know, we, we were we're a big company, but we were lucky we were in a pretty good position, but it was bloody scary. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, first of all, we looked after our staff. Uh, JobKeeper came in, which helped. We started doing a little bit of takeaway in some restaurants and then um, and then we started reopening and because we had some 
um, some benefits of you know rents and and government assistance and whatever. It actually it looked really good, and then Christmas time happened and it was devastating. We lost all our sort of you know week before Christmas all the way up into probably mid January trade. Um, New Year's Eve is one of our biggest what is our biggest revenue day. Um, that was an absolute disaster, uh, and then we kicked on again and we came back a bit and then we had the uh, another little scare and the minute we get scares the media blow it up and people stop going to restaurants um, I suppose it's understandable no one wants to get it you know I think we need this vaccine to be rolled out as soon as we bloody can because um, you know we're experiencing a spike in Sydney there's only 20 cases I think at the moment but um, you know that really affects it. So Matt what trends do you sort of see emerging from this whole saga and debacle you know I don't know if they would have come as a result of COVID, but where do you see the next trends emerging in the food industry? Look, restaurants are a lot more, as I said, a lot more agile and they're streamlining a lot more. Um, as for, for trends, you know, it, it's, I wish I could predict all those ones because maybe, yeah. man, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, I, I think, you know, it's labor is expensive in restaurants. Um, so, you know, I, you don't, you don't, I don't think we'll end up seeing like real classical fine dining as much in Australia as probably what we had. Um, there is definitely a trend for more food, um, plant-based foods mm-hmm. um, and less protein. Um, and that also helps you cost as a businessman because protein is expensive. Um, but that is a trend. It's not really a trend. I think it's here to stay. You know, people, people want to eat a lot more plant-based and, and don't want to eat um, you know, massive big steaks anymore. You know, it's not about the, the protein. It's about, it used to be the protein with a tiny little bit of garnish on the side. And now it's about the protein and, and how much vegetables you put on the side. Yeah. And that's you know, the, the protein's gone from, you know, 300 grams to 150 grams and, and then a lot more garnish in plant-based foods. Yeah. And so what would the advice be for other chefs, restaurateurs, media professionals coming through? That's probably three separate questions, actually. It is. What, what Look, would it be? Um, do it because you love it. Um, make sure you're passionate about it because it's too bloody hard. And, uh, and you know, learn the, learn the trade before you actually go and open something because it's, uh, you can lose a lot of money very bloody quickly. Um, you know, I, I see people all the time, it's footballers that I'm, I'm mates with that I've met over the years and they say, you know, Matt, when I retire, I'm going to open a restaurant or a cafe. And, you know, I'm sure they're thinking, God, if you can do it, anyone can do it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the difference is, is when their chef walks out and, you know, they're in the shit, I can jump in the kitchen. <laughs> true. That is true. And so reflecting upon this amazing journey, Matt, uh, what do you think are some of the proudest moments that you've had? Uh, look, it, it might be what I wanted, but I never envisaged any of it. Um, you know, I suppose owning your first restaurant, um, you know, and we're talking professionally, of course, yep. you know, um, you know, having kids is probably my, my biggest sort of, you know, claim to fame mm-hmm. um, and having good kids. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think owning my first restaurant, you know, getting that first award, you know, that, that first chef's hat, that was a big thing. You know, I was one of the youngest ever to get one. Um, you know, I think I was only 23 at the time. And, uh, you know, and, you know, having great people around me and, and you know, having success not just shared with me but with, you know, other people. Um, you know, Peter Sullivan, my first partner, who's pretty much retired now. Um, you know, Bruce Solomon's been a great mentor um, and, a, and a great partner. 
Um, he's sort of retiring a little bit more now too. Um, but there's another younger generation, Bruce's son, Elliot, who is a, is a partner in, in some businesses with me. Um, you know, it's great to, to have that younger generation coming through. And so on the flip side of that coin, I think one of the biggest things that I've um, believed in coming through is that mm. you, you don't have wins and losses. You have a win or you have a learn. That's very a winner, wise, a winner, Tim. That's very wise. Thank you. But <laughs> the, right? the question is, what do you think your biggest learn would be then? Because you've, you've had your biggest win as being the restaurant and coming through and, and enjoying a fascinating career. But what do you think the biggest learn was? Look, uh, you know, there's no question. The first, the, the biggest one was when we first opened Paddington Inn, we had no idea about the business side of it. And we, yep. we, we realized that we needed someone to come in and help. Um, you know, and I think the, the next biggest one was that there was a time there when, when we were overcommitting and expanding at a rate that we probably shouldn't have. Um, and that hurt a little bit because there was a couple of businesses that I got involved in that, um, you know, from something that always worked and always made money to all of a sudden having one that didn't and it failed. Um, and one, it brings you back to earth pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, so don't overcommit and, um, and, you know, don't, um, don't grow that, that quick that, you know, you, you lose control of it. Um, uh, stay humble and, um, and, and generosity is a good thing. I think that's a massive thing, especially for entrepreneurship and, and that particular industry, because so much emphasis is placed on scale and scaling yeah. and, and coming through and making things as big as possible. Do you think that doesn't really translate in terms of food? Yeah, look, I, I think you've got to get it right, you know, and by over expanding too quickly and, and taking on too much, you know, without having the right people, you know, with you too, it, it's, it's, it's a mistake. Um, you know, I, I think, the last couple of years for for, for our company, it, it's been consolidation, um, yep. and uh, and making sure that the restaurants that we've got are, are better than what they were the year before and more profitable. Um, it's very hard in the COVID year, but that's that's what we we still want to do. Um, you know, I'm expanding a little bit now again. You know, with, with opportunities that I probably wouldn't have had um, coming out of COVID, and um, yeah, look, you know, but you know, I, I think the ambition is is gone from owning, you know. Uh, 50 restaurants to 100 restaurants is, is now gone in my life. You know, I just want to, you know, I want to have a bit of fun. You know, I want to, yeah. um, you know, I want to spend more time with, you know, with my kids and, and you know, make sure that they do the right thing. What does that fun look like? Yeah. Oh, mate, if, if you know, if, if Harry's told you anything about me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy that has a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> you know, the year before COVID it was my, my 50th year and, and um, I went to Monaco with Mick Doohan, who's an ex-motorcycle rider, for oh, three amazing. days and had a bit of fun. And then I went to London and Gordon Hyde Brands Hatch for the for the day and we raced cars. And then we flew up in a private jet to Iceland and Gordon and I went fishing for four days. And, um, mate, I know how to have fun. And, uh, you know, I, I love my motorbikes and I always do. And, and Harry's, Harry knows I've got a bit of a collection. Um, so, you know, I'd love to get out in, in the country and go for rides and, you know, and, uh, you know, I love to travel, you know, the farm. I'm going to spend more time there. And, yeah, I'm, I'm a fun guy. I used to tell Harry that when he used to think I was a nerd, you know, when he's about 15, he's like, don't touch me, Dad. Keep away from me. Okay, mate, you don't get it. You know, look at your other mates, Dads. I'm cool. <laughs> I've got tattoos and I ride motorbikes. He's like, no, you're not. Don't touch me. Probably embarrassed the shit out of him now, but, you know, bad luck. That's awesome. Matt Moran, thank you so much for joining me on Project Nexus. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear how you've gone from 
Uh, well, I suppose it's kind of an analogy for Paddock to Plate, your story. Um, so thank you so much for joining me, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure, buddy. I'll um, look forward to seeing you in Sydney for that uh, that Castle one day.